The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, this is Tim Foster with the Capital Weekly, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. We recorded this episode last week at the Legislative Conference for the California Community College League. Uh, normally, this would have been a large live event with hundreds of people in person, but of course, that was not possible this year, and so they hosted this via Zoom and asked us if we would moderate a discussion about education at the ballot box, looking at what happened in 2020 and also what we can expect going forward in 2022 and beyond. And our guest for this discussion was Gail Kaufman. Gail is probably a familiar name to many of our regular listeners. Gail, of course, uh, runs Kaufman campaigns and has run a ballot proposition or two or more in every election cycle since 1998. And she's often affiliated with with education-related campaigns. If there is a single person in California you want to talk on the topic of education at the ballot box, it would be Gail Kaufman. And and we learned a lot and felt like it was very compelling. We did have audience questions during this event, and we also had questions from Larry Galizio, the California Community College League president, who also uh, acted as MC for the entire event. And we were really uh, honored to have them ask us to participate in this. It was really fun. And I think the discussion was really interesting. And of course, Gail uh, knows more about ballot propositions and how to win them than, than almost anybody else in the state. So hope you'll enjoy listening. I, I think this was a good episode. We'll be back to our regular episodes next week. And uh, thanks a lot. Um, I don't know if I should start it off, but I will because Filling the vacuum is what I do best sometimes. So uh, I had a prepared question, but then just before we started the event, we were talking, we're chatting about polling. Uh, how does that play out? How is that going to play out now? I know, Gail, you mentioned earlier about the pandemic impact just on getting accurate polling numbers. So who do we trust? And, and are we going to be able to get some sort of definitive answer on what to expect in terms of accurate polling? Well, who do we trust? I think you always can trust voters, but you have to pay really close attention to when you're polling and the kind of questions you're asking. Right now, I know the election in the fall gave us all a lot of concern about how the polling went nationally and in some regards, even in California. Mm -hmm. Um, Currently, when I talk to the pollsters I work with, Uh, most of the time, their feeling is until the pandemic gets to a place where people are no longer really still concerned about their health. And you can imagine that everybody's home, everybody's thinking um, more about their own family life and things that impact them than ever before. So if you want to talk to them about economic issues, which a lot of what we're talking about today concerns that, Yes, they're going to answer your questions, but the emotion and the accuracy of their of their answers is really, as they always say about polling, a moment in time. Mm-hmm. I would recommend go back and check it again 
in two or three months. And that's what most pollsters have said. It's really much more um, uh, a real moment than it would be long-term um, in terms of our ability to use that polling to predict behavior in, let's say, a year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, talk about voting behavior. It's interesting to me, uh, since we're going we're gonna to deal with fiscal issues today. But um, I was struck by the disparity between how people think statewide and how people think locally. And uh, we have major bond issue. Um, we had major bond issues, plural. Uh, that went down. We had uh, a major change to Proposition 13 that went down that would have raised billions of dollars for schools. And yet at the same time, at the local level, we had bond issues approved. I think one number I saw was two thirds of the bond issues that were on local ballots were approved and parcel taxes, about two thirds were approved, raising $13 billion. Uh, so people locally like them, but people statewide, statewide don't, uh, or at least vote against them or narrowly vote against them. What, what do you think is going on? Are the locals smarter than statewide or vice versa? Or? Well, everybody uh, will have their own uh, <laughs> guess as to what happened, to be honest. And uh, as someone who's done a lot of statewide, I always used to get nervous when local bonds were on at the same time. Now yeah. I think it's flipped. Oh, goody, there's local stuff on, maybe we can pass it. So I do think, again, it goes back to my answer on the, on the pandemic. I think every campaign has to stand alone. And this time, if you go back to the primary, we saw the bond fail, which shocked, I think, most people because it was a school bond. And I've done a lot of those and we've uh -huh. always had success in passing them. So last year was really an anomaly on lots of levels. I think the local, the only thing I can say is people felt closer to their local government. And yeah. as far as trust went, I think if they were gonna be willing to spend money, they were much more willing last time to spend it locally. That's really not uh, a revolutionary statement for me to make, but it's the only analysis that fits. Yeah, okay. So Gil, you've been following these campaigns for decades. Too long. Yes, I won't. Go ahead. Uh, and uh, can you give us some context on what you saw in the last election versus how it's been over the years? I mean, do you feel like people are tighter with their pocketbooks? They're less trusting of government, uh, more trusting of government. What do you think, what have been the sort of the paradigm shifts that you've seen over the time that you've been watching and where are we now compared to where we've been? I mean, one thing I could think of as an example is that at least now we discuss the idea of changing Prop 13. That 15 years ago, that was basically not even on the table. And if you suggested that your political career was basically over unless you were, you know, maybe the most liberal San Francisco Democrat. But, uh, but now we discuss it, but it still never happens. Nothing ever changes. But I'm thinking there, there are probably other changes that you've seen. And I'm wondering if you can kind of put this all in context uh, in, in the time you've been following this and working it, how have things changed? Um, let me make two or three points from what you asked me. One, in terms of a paradigm shift, I don't know. I think, put yourself into that question. The last year has just, listen to, listening to the students who opened up our segment, you know, 
everything shifted. And again, people really did look at this ballot, which, by the way, was incredibly long in terms of initiatives um, and, and substantive in the middle of a pandemic. It shocked me that so many things were on that people would have to pay attention to if they were going to be thoughtful about their voting. So I don't see it as a paradigm shift. What I see is you have to know when you start thinking about an initiative, which normally would be right about now, if you were thinking of putting something on the 2022 ballot, you take a two year kind of uh period to look at the polling and testing and get the question right and get the initiative right. And then you put it on the ballot. Well, this time, I would say using Prop 15 as your example, which was on the ballot last time, they did more polling on that issue before they put it on the ballot than anything I've ever seen. And I didn't run the campaign. So it's I'm not speaking from direct access. But that being said, you're right. Um, it was uh, the first time that anybody tread on Prop 13 at all, although neither side, surprisingly to me, really made a big issue of it and almost ignored it. So while we were all watching saying, oh, my God, they're touching Prop 13, most voters didn't even know that was part of the equation. And in some of the research I've seen since the election, they didn't even realize in some respects that the money would go for education. So broad way of saying, I don't know that there was a paradigm shift, but there was certainly a change between the time people wrote those initiatives and the time voters had to vote. And so much had gone on nationally and so much had gone on locally to change people's view of the, of the electeds that I think that accounts for way more than any single campaign would like to admit. And then as far as Prop 13 and touching that, I think it did open the door a bit, but each campaign would have to be very thoughtful about moving forward on fiscal issues. And finally, I just think that um, if you're thinking about moving forward, on uh, issues related to funding, which I think everybody believes we need to do, both on bonds and I can't explain the behavior, to be honest, in March. It came as much of a surprise to me as I think everybody that was looking at it. Um, you need to know that voters recognize what's going on around them. And they're much more, whether they're progressive or not, they're much more um, concerned about their local small businesses, their local environment than ever before. So where we would think some of those issues would be either left or right issues, they're not anymore. People on the economic side, it doesn't matter how you call what you call yourself ideologically, you're as worried about businesses leaving California if you're on the left as if you're on the right. And that's a change. You know, on the money, um, on the dollars, the legislative analysts predicted a huge surplus in November, over $26 billion, and then downgraded that to between 15 and 16 billion. But since then, a lot of things have happened. The employment picture definitely is weakening. And it seems to me that 
the next big date for funding for not only community colleges, but for everybody is going to be the May revision. Mm-hmm. We think we've got employment now that's down. We have this scandal going on with the EDD in terms of their funding. I read this morning, it's at $11 billion now. It's hard to imagine that. Um, but the dollars out there may be very, very soft. So I know that going into this year, the California Community College has got some, they're happy with the budget, some deferral payments. They were able, the state's able to make those up. They're happy with a lot of things. But I'm wondering as we go forward, uh, have you picked up any signals about how weak the economy may be among your clients, among people who may want to run a ballot initiative next year, uh, looking what this year might mean for that? Any thoughts about that? Well, yeah, a little. Um, <laughs> I, I think that right, th- I think you're right, John, about the main revision, first of all. I think a lot's going to happen between now and then, and it will be hard to know how close to the January budget we're going to end up. I think for those who are looking at education dollars, you would say, well, it looks okay right now. But the squishiness and the the out years, for instance, on Prop 98 are Mm -hmm. not looking good at all. So right this minute for the legislative leadership, for the governor, you can say, wow, okay, we're all right. But then, you know, $2 billion right this minute of 98 money is what's being suggested as how to reopen schools instead of finding a different source for that money. So the worry moving forward is number one, as always, touching Prop 98 for things that are not normal 98 investments. And then how far can the economy really pull back? And how many things should you really be doing to help people? I think the most important issues for the legislature right now are really this may not like my clients may hate me saying this, but I think, you know, homelessness, housing, things that bring communities back up, I think are just as important in the short run for the budget and would I think help lift all boats, especially community colleges, right this sec, uh, and then looking prospectively down the line for education funding. You know, uh, Talking about lifting all boats, we did a recent podcast with Lenny Mendonca, who was the head of GoBiz uh, up until last year. And he talked about the possibility of California looking at changing tax policy broadly. Right now, we rely very heavily on uh, top earners. And if top earners are doing well, as they strangely are during the pandemic, uh, the state's income does well. And if top earners don't do well, we have big problems. And he thought that we were always going to have sort of a feast or famine unless we recalibrated our tax policy. Um, in your polling and in your, you know, talking about what you're planning to do or what your clients are planning to do, is there any sense that that's something they would look to in the future, maybe doing some renegotiation of tax policy through ballot initiatives? Or is that something that is just too far, too far off, off what they do. I think we're always looking at new sources of revenue streams. So to the degree that um, you're right, that top income earners have provided an awful lot of this 
recent uh, funding situation. Um, the wealth tax, things like that, that have been discussed will continue to be discussed, but there's always a group that I think is looking to normalize things or straighten things to a place that we've not been able to come to an agreement on up until now. I think there's gonna be a continuation of broad uh, tax structure discussions. It, in my opinion, if the legislature and the governor took those things on, and I know they have at different points, talk to Bob Hertzberg about how, how many of those meetings he's been in over the years, but if they could come to some agreement and they could start looking down the line, that would be incredibly helpful because what ends up happening is that outside interests seem to be the ones who set that table. And while most of them are, you know, I'm familiar with or are clients of mine, so that's great. I get to be in on the research. I think if we could do it a little bit more, you know, collaboratively, that would help. Um, something similar to what we did with Jerry Brown on Prop 30. And that helped a lot. And he was engaged. And I think, you know, that's more a model of moving forward for big change uh, that I'd like to see. Well, Prop 30, you had Sutter Brown. And I don't think uh, Gavin Newsom has a dog. So I don't think <laughs> huge. Uh, well, never crap. Said that. <laughs> we'll have to change something. We do have a question from, uh, from a an audience member named Bernardo, and he asks, how do you overcome the knee-jerk opposition to addressing issues uh, anytime you touch Prop 13? Uh, he, his example is Prop 15, and there's the perception of the erosion of Prop 13, and he's asking if there's a way that it could be framed differently that might help that do better? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that that's probably the core of every discussion about touching Prop 13 is how do you frame it? But uh, do you think the framing is the answer there or do you just think it's, it's hard to touch Prop 13? Well, I think it's hard to touch it because there's some group of voters who the second you say Prop 13, they just assume their property taxes are gonna be impacted. So you have to just expect that and understand that. But that, pool of voters is getting smaller all the time. Right now, if you ask voters at large, how many of them even know what Prop 13 is, you'd be surprised what that number looks like. Wow. So with time, that number gets smaller. But also the group of older voters who know exactly what it is, their vote is pretty locked. What's nice about 15 um, happening, if they're a, a you know, it lost, so there's nothing nice about it. But it did prove, as we discussed, that if you're careful about how you do it and you explain it and you explain where the money's going to go, um, I think there we have at least seen that there's a small uh, avenue that you can take. You just can't overreach. I don't think overturning Prop 13 is an easy proposition by and large. These campaigns, uh, Prop 13 is a great example, the original one, but many other campaigns are, uh, they, they're based on a kernel of truth or a half truth, and then expand on that with advertising and persuasive, you know, social media and all that to, to make their case for or against. 
Prop 13, I don't recall at the time, the original Prop 13 that anyone knew, at least nobody I talked with, knew that uh, commercial property was going to get a big tax break and that people who owned rental property were going to get a big tax break as Howard Jarvis did. And it was proved, I think it was passed because people, as you said, wanted to reduce their taxes and because older people, the mantra went, were getting taxed out of their homes. And that really didn't hit the core of Prop 13 over, over time. And I think other propositions, I know you've been involved in propositions, of course, winning campaigns, of course, but getting the right message at the right time is the whole key to getting passage to these things. And I'm wondering what you, what do you think would be the best message? You sort of alluded it to, but what would be the best message to getting a Prop 13 reform, a Prop 13 change approved by voters? Well, I don't know if on the spot I can come up with a message. But <laughs> We're taking I, notes here. After, right, after an awful lot of them went down. Um, but I think the most important thing is that you have to be able to tie whatever you're doing to where the money's going to go and what it's going to be used for. And as you know, voters get more and more skeptical that you're telling the truth. We've just had a whole long time of people being able to say whatever they thought they wanted to say and nobody being able to stop them. So if we could actually get back to uh, a campaign where the truth was the truth and people believed it, if you're careful, thoughtful, and don't overreach, I think the one thing for all of you to remember is uh, funding for education, including community colleges. We've tested it enough. It's not just K through 12. It is K through 12 and community colleges. People are willing to spend money for things that make their schools better. And if you can legitimately tie your messaging to that, you have a much, but with accountability that's real yeah. and provable, which we always talk about, but rarely do afterwards. What would be great is after the campaign to actually make good on the claims in the campaign that you can see where the money's going. Back to your question about local funding. If you could make that part much more real, I think you'd have a much better chance of passing. So Gail, we also had a question uh, from Jonathan Lightman about uh, Prop 16, which I don't think, I think was expected to pass. And I think expected to pass fairly easily. There wasn't much opposition to it. And then it did fail, which I think most people did not, myself included, did not see coming. Uh, and they're wondering if you could speak to the possibilities of overturning Prop 209 and sort of a future uh, for revisiting Prop 16. Do you think that's something that is going to come back around again, or are we just stuck with that? Well, I'd like to, I, I certainly would like to think it could come back. Um, and, you know, I, I do this for a living, so I can get really into the weeds pretty fast. Here's my quick overview of that. First of all, it quickly went on the ballot through the legislature. And as, a, as someone who does this, it always makes me crazy when the front end of the campaign isn't thought through as much as it should. If that was put on the ballot at the height 
of a lot of protests and a lot of activity that quickly went away. But at that moment, it felt like it was a possible good time to put that on the ballot. And if you think about it, there hadn't been a whole lot of conversation about it before then. So one, being really careful about the construction of the initiative would have been helpful. I say that because I think a lot of people assumed everyone knew what that issue was, what that initiative was, and you'd be amazed if you talked to people, they had no idea. Or if you said affirmative action, some people knew what you meant and some people didn't. So, and there, while there wasn't a lot of opposition, there wasn't a lot of money either way. And there was a lot of confusion and a lot of competition when other initiatives were spending $200 million on messaging. So having said all of that, I think, yes, it, with a much more carefully thought through taking your time initiative, I think you could pass it. I think you're right about the confusion on the part of voters because I didn't see much advertising on Prop 16, but the advertising I did see was saying, no on Prop 16, don't enshrine racism. You know, it was basically flipping the script, making it seem like if you were eliminating Prop 209, you were creating racism versus addressing racism. And I think there was a genuine confusion on the part of the voters who, you know, maybe they didn't remember exactly what 209 was or, you know, they just weren't that familiar with it. So I definitely felt like confusion played a role there for sure. Gail, do you see any issues now um, that seem likely to be ballot bound or may go through the legislature and be resolved via statute or being legislative action? It would seem like Democrats, because they control both houses of the legislature overwhelmingly and they have a Democratic governor, uh, would be more disposed to go that way. But that's not always the case. And I'm wondering if you see any ballot battle shaping up. Uh, we're very early in 2021, but uh, next year we'll be here before we know it, hopefully. You see anything shaping up? Um, well, there definitely are funding conversations going on for schools, education, and for other issues I've already mentioned, like housing and the homeless. Um, there's bond issues that are being discussed. There's also a couple of initiatives that have already qualified for next year's ballot, like the MICRA issue, which was qualified in time for last ballot, but the proponents kicked it till 2022. And there's also a referendum that's already qualified on the tobacco issue. So there's a few that are already, we know going to be on the ballot, um, that being said, if there, was, if there was a lesson last time, there were too many huge, hugely funded, very singular in purpose initiatives last time that I think just blew people's minds out in the middle of, you know, the Trump-Biden campaign where just people were focused on that. So the drop-off between the top of the ballot and when you got to the 11 initiatives that were on the ballot was pretty remarkable if you were me and you had bail at the very end of the ballot. So, um, you know, it's stuff like that you have to contend with when you're thinking about a two-year cycle. I would, as I started with, I think it's hard for people to sit down and know whether something they want to do in 2022, which is a not a presidential year, so obviously a smaller electorate. What could you pass 
in a gubernatorial year as opposed to a presidential year that's so um, uh, easy to pass or looks like it's got, you know, pretty decent support that's bipartisan. When was the last time we had one of those? You know, I, I think it's hard right now. I would, I am and would recommend that people be thinking more 2024, to be honest. If wow. it's an issue that you've spent a lot of time and effort on and that you really think is something you want to move forward with, I take the time to let the pandemic sort itself out. I wonder if it'll sort not, itself not out. Not what everyone wanted to hear, I know, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's my advice. Tough love, Gil. It's yeah, tough, tough love is right. <laughs> Nobody ever listens to me, so it's okay. <laughs> um, this year, looking at this year and not next year, but um, there had been hope last year that maybe the pandemic would sort itself out by the spring. And that was the, that expectation was partly because the vaccine distribution would be up to snuff. But we're seeing now the, vac the vaccine in California um, is slow. And numbers we've heard, Tim and I were talking about this earlier, 50th out of 50 states, that's pretty slow. So looking ahead, you're not an epidemiologist and you're not Dr. Fauci, but looking ahead, uh, do you see a return to normal normalcy anytime here uh, this year? I've sort of written it off just intuitively without the scintilla of evidence, but I'm just wondering if there's some more positive views out there, political views as they relate to this. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on who you talk to, and I'd, I'd love to have the popularity of Dr. Fauci at the moment. But I, I do think that with, um, you know, every day you see both positive and negative things happening on the national level, on the state level, obviously, everybody's trying to push yeah. for the vaccine. But I do think that's part of my last answer is I don't see uh, a clear path now, you know, probably we're talking summer or fall. And as far as reopening schools, reopening campuses, reopening things that, you know, we've taken for granted for so long, it's not just the reopening. And that's as big a problem as anything I think in front of people right this minute, but it's ha what happens when they do reopen and you have a couple months under your belt, is everybody going to be sighing with relief or not? Yeah. And so, you know, until you can get to there and see what it does to teachers and, and all of the every, uh, educators everywhere and how they're feeling going back, um, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer, John. It really is right yeah. now. It just feels like you can make decisions right now, but you don't know where, you're, where parents are and students are really until they get back to some sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. And the inequality that was discussed on the outside of this, the, the, the sheer number of people who never were able to catch up technologically at their home and otherwise, like how many students are behind now? And what do you do about all of that? I mean, to me, that's a huge question that nobody's talking about. So, Gail, we do have a question, another question from an audience member, uh, Tammy Silver. She's asking a very specific question, uh, looking for tips 
for local community college districts that are considering putting bonds on the ballot. And is there anything that you can advise and anything that's helpful to do? I'm, I'm sure you could actually probably write a book about this. <laughs> but if you could uh, give a few tips that, uh, that local organizers could use as they're starting to put these things together. Research, research, research. That's honestly, everybody's got a good eye. Keep it simple. Don't put too many things in it. Don't overreach because somebody offers you some funding and say, we're going to make it be about multiple things. Try and keep your, your bond issue tight and um, really see if there's the bandwidth within your community by, I'm not saying it has to be intensive, expensive polling, but if you could do at least one survey and get a sense of what issues people care about most, it would help you dramatically. And then I think you really have to pay attention to what else is on the ballot with you. So if you have any sense of that, that will help you decide which ballot to try and put it on. How far in advance do you think a local, uh, a local ballot measure like that would have to be prepped? Six months to nine months, I think. So much, much quicker than a statewide. Yeah. John, do you have any other questions? Uh, yeah. Um, I know we talked about the May revise earlier and things happening. And in that context, the California budget is based a lot, as we mentioned before, on the wealthy and the capital gains uh, tax revenue. People in the stock market buying and selling uh, properties counted as income tax in California. It's a big chunk of dough. And so this disparity between wealthy people with stock market uh, who are in the market and doing famously well now, as far as I can tell, and then most of the rest of us who are not, is that going to play out uh, in the ballot? Again, are we going to have another tax the rich or soak the rich uh, is the wealthy versus poor a dynamic you're seeing as we look not only this year, but beyond this year in terms of the ballot statewide? I'm talking about statewide. You know, it's a it's a fascinating question, John, because there's definitely research going on. And there are certainly people who would like to try something that, for lack of a better term, I'll just call a wealth tax, because clearly the people who have, you know, done the best, mm -hmm. it feels like couldn't they help us and shouldn't they help us? So of course there's gonna be a push and a strong push to keep going in that direction. I think um, there are, there's pushback on that obviously in terms of what you already asked me in terms of a broader tax um, measure that would, you know, once and for all try and um, take care of bigger issues and, and settle some things. So I guess really the question is, where does everybody come down in the end? Is it more important to try and get something on the ballot like a wealth tax, but it, and it could be a corporate tax. It could be something that, again, we haven't actually talked about, but it's in that vein. And, um, uh, whether or not it's, it's, it's time to do something like that on the ballot in 2022 or hold it. You may remember this. Didn't Hertzberg propose a tax on services maybe yes, about 10 years yeah. ago? Yeah. I don't know if that's something 
yeah. with a can of worms that open. But uh, I don't know if that's something that would ever go to the ballot or if that's better, maybe better left to the legislature or maybe better left alone. I'm not sure. That's interesting. The LAO had analysis, including that included that one as one of the options. It's just out right. there floating around, but I don't know that there's any regulation right. on it. And that, and you're right, it caused a real firestorm. Everyone wants to pay taxes on their hair, you know, their haircut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've tested that. I can't tell you how many times and um, over the years, that's a hard one. That's so it does, it does not pull well? No, for exactly the reason you said. Yeah. It's all about the hair. No, oh. I'm kidding. But it's, but it's things like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems, you know. I and mean, after a year of being home, more people are focused on their hair than ever before. <laughs> Let it fall out naturally is my motto. It's okay. You know, don't have to go to the barber shop. You know. <laughs> John just has to shave his beard once a year. Yeah, I shave now. It's growing back. It's at the worst time that it can possibly. It's itchy and uh, you know, I don't like it. Just too much information for everybody. I can see. John normally lives. You, um, you're not familiar with John. Looks like normally he looks like Grizzly Adams. You're getting a. Yeah, you're actually you seeing the contours of his face right now. It's unusual. <laughs> um, now I forgot the question. You know, well, we have I have a burning question. <laughs> we probably have time for one more uh, question, John. Okay, um, the uh, local government versus statewide. We talked about locals versus statewide, but the community colleges seems to me they're kind of well positioned here. They're run by local, uh, the local governance. The 110, 116 campuses out there have an intense local connection. They are like little fiefdoms among them, among themselves are not controlled by trustees in Long Beach or an office of the president in Oakland. They're intensely local. So I'm wondering, are they our local community college districts, should they be more active in local financing in terms of ballots, you know, ballot measures? I don't know how that works. Do you, have you ever run across that? And what do you think about that? I have not, but I certainly think it's um, something that the people who are listening to this know a lot more than I do, but I would imagine that it would be a great organizing mechanism especially at a time where normal organizing mechanisms are difficult. For instance, walking door to door and other processes that have for the last year not been at our disposal. So from an organizing standpoint, the way you asked me the question, it, it makes my mind go there. And sure, I think they'd be great areas for that. But, you know, the question is, are you talking about just one area or are you trying to do something statewide? No, sure. And, uh, you know, then that gets more complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Tim, did you have a question or a follow? Uh, my only question is, and this totally has nothing to do with anything, and of course it'll make no sense on the podcast, but I'm, I'm looking at Gail's background. What is your little sculpture there over your left shoulder? It looks like a tiny, tiny little Al Gore. It's actually a tiny, tiny little Obama. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's the only time in, in history that uh, Obama has been, or Al Gore has been mistaken for Obama. <laughs> I tell it true. Totally true. I definitely want to get one of those backgrounds, you know, uh, I don't know, with the Golden Gate Bridge behind me or an aquarium, something soothing. And I just, so instead I'm in my wife's crowded office here with books everywhere. I think you can't see. I thought I moved them both, most of the way out. But, uh, hey, you know, I actually do have maybe one last question. Uh, so the new first lady who just 
uh, came into office, uh, I guess you say a first lady came into office uh, earlier this month, is a teacher. Do you think that that is going to have any effect at all in the public perception of education? And is she going to be able to use the bully pulpit and perhaps encourage spending and funding and support of ballot initiatives, et cetera? Or is that too far afield, uh, you know, or people are not paying that close attention? What do you, what do you think about that? I, I think it's a wonderful opportunity and I think she's already started to take it. I mean, one of the first things that she did uh, was, a, was, I think, a roundtable, whatever, um, with other educators. I, and if you look at what Biden's already done within the first week, um, he's focused on reopening schools, but in a way that helps fund them and thinks about it the way I'd like to see more thought go into it in terms of protecting people and safety and real things that people need. So I would imagine her influence on those issues will be immense. And she said that she wants to be really active in that way. So I certainly think it's nothing but a benefit, especially because of her uh, continued continuing to teach while she's first lady, which she says she's college. going to do. Yeah. At a community college. Right. All right, John, do you want to give us our wrap up? Uh, it's a wrap. Gail Kaufman. Thank you very much. Tim. Thank you very much. Thanks. John. And thank you for our, this is probably the easiest podcast we've ever had to organize. <laughs> Larry, <laughs> Larry, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Uh, well, you know, thank you, John. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Gail. It's very, very helpful to get your your perspectives on, you know, sort of the statewide and the, and the local. Um, you know, we have 150 some odd community college stakeholders, students, faculty, um, trustees. And, you know, if, if I might, I, I know we, we did a wrap, but I, I think it would be, if, if you wouldn't mind, just one last question, if, if I might, maybe uh, Gail and, and, and John and Tim certainly feel if, if you want to give your opinion as well. But, you know, in the next few days or so, uh, and then all the way until the end of the legislative session, of course, trustees and superintendent presidents and chancellors and faculty and others and students will be advocating to support community colleges and community college students and capacity. So considering the, the environment in which our legislators and the executive branch are working, uh, what would your, what would you, how would you frame the argument for strengthening the investment in California's community colleges? Well, as a reporter, uh, I'm lucky enough to let other people do the framing and then I report whether it's good or bad. So they do all the heavy, heavy lifting, but uh, uh, access to education clearly is the message that I see as I look around. My wife's a teacher and has been here in Sacramento for 35 years. Uh, access to the classroom, uh, equipment that allows uh, internet access as the first person who spoke, the student spoke, can mention that. That's huge in Sacramento that I'm seeing. Uh, I think access to the classroom is, is a big deal to the extent that that's improved. And if it's outreach in communities to encourage more people to participate, if it's more funding, for more classrooms, whatever that might be. I know it comes down to money and strategy. That's more Gail's bailiwick, of course, but it just seems to me access is the big deal. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think, you know, community colleges, 
serve such an important role in that they provide access to college for people that really couldn't go otherwise. You know, myself as an example, I don't, I was not ready for a four-year college and I certainly couldn't afford it uh, when I first got out of high school. So I went and went, did a few years in community college prepping and then transferred to UC Davis. And uh, frankly, I don't know that I would have ever gotten a college degree without the option. I just, it, it was just too much of a leap. No one in my family went to college. So uh, I didn't know how to make that transition. And community college absolutely provided a bridge for me to go on to higher education and made me realize how valuable it was. So, and I think that there's a lot of people out there who their entire access to higher education is through community colleges. Where, where did you go? Uh, well, I went to, I did a very short time in American River. And then when I moved down here, I went to uh, Sacramento City. Fantastic. Gail? Uh, just as a final, um, I, I would agree with what both have said, but I would also say um, in, in encapsulating what was just said, the economy right now being where it is to bring kind of our whole discussion back. Um, in talking to legislators right this minute who seem to always remember about the community colleges after they look at K through 12, um, I think you have a moment, I really do, because I think right now, while um, schools are in some areas open and some areas not, everything I've seen, and maybe I'm only reading selective articles, is that the community colleges have figured out how to provide education during this period. Certainly the access is still an issue and things like that, but because a lot are commuters to start with, you know, being at home, remote learning is not as big a shock to the system as it is for K through 12. So since you have that moment, I would take advantage of it and be able to present a little bit of a different case than you would under normal circumstances. And to reinforce all the positives and the difficulties for people to get access to classrooms at both the UCs and CSUs. Don't anybody listen to that from the UC, CSU. But I mean, I think you have an incredibly powerful story to tell at this moment. And I would tell it right this minute to make sure that when people are considering funding and also structural changes or infrastructure, that they keep you at the top or close to the top as opposed to always an afterthought. Very helpful, very inspiring. So Gail Kaufman, John Howard, Tim Foster, thank you all three very much. And we look forward to listening to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Larry. Thanks for having us.